0: last week, if you weren't with us, uh, we started a study in the Psalms. And uh, we're going to return to this later in the summer when we start meeting on Friday nights again. But what we looked at last week was Psalm chapter 1, right? The very first Psalm of the Psalter. And if you guys remember, Psalm 1 laid out very straightforwardly for us two kinds of people. There was the righteous and then you had the wicked. And what we learned from that Psalm was that the righteous prosper and the wicked perish. And it said that the righteous person is like this fruitful and stable and healthy tree that's planted by streams of water. And it, the image that it gave us for the wicked was, it said the wicked person is like chaff, right? It's, it's light, it's, it lacks substance. And once the wind comes, it sweeps the chaff away. Um, but another thing that we pointed out from Psalm 1, though, is that this picture that it gives us, And what God promises to be true and what God promises to happen is not always our experience, right? Like, we don't always seem to live in a Psalm 1 kind of life, a Psalm 1 kind of world. And as we said, the rest of the Psalms show us that, right? Uh, In the rest of the Psalms, we get this, we get the honest reflections of God's people, and they're wrestling with this question like, God, I, I thought you told me that life was what you told us in Psalm 1. Like, why are wicked people para- are prospering? And why does my righteousness seem to be in vain? Like, why, why does it seem like it's not going according to what you said? Well, that question and that, that struggle uh, is what we see in our psalm tonight. Psalm chapter 3. And Psalm 3 is categorized as a psalm of lament. Um, and if you read through all 150 psalms, there are many of these kinds of psalms, many psalms of lament. Uh, just real quick, generally there are kind of three broad categories of things that the psalmist lament over. Okay? First, they lament over uh, his own heart and his own actions. Okay, his own heart and his own actions. Second, they lament over other people's wrong against them. And then third, they lament over the action or the inaction of God. Okay, those are like kind of the three broad categories that the psalmist will uh, lament over. And what's interesting when you read through these psalms, and what's I think instructive for us, is that often we see all three of them at the same time. We see all three of them in the same psalm happening at the same time. And I think that's instructive for us because, like, that's how life is, isn't it? Life doesn't happen in these, you know, like, clean, neat categories. You're not just lamenting over one thing at one time. All of this is happening in your life at once, and, and maybe you guys can relate to that. The way that we put it often here at Lighthouse is that we are all, at the same time, sinners, sufferers, and saints. Right? You guys have heard that a lot, I think, if you've been here at Lighthouse. Uh, what we mean by that is that suffering in your life, uh, when you experience suffering, it's real is significant and matters. Right? We're sufferers in that way. But in the midst of that, we're also all prone to sin in our suffering. Like we're all prone to uh, think wrong thoughts of God. We're all prone to complain and grumble in our hearts. Right? We're all sinners still, even in our suffering. And on top of all of that, God is doing something good. Right? And that's the saints part. God is doing something good in you. there are evidences of grace that we can point to uh, in your own life but also in other people's lives as they're going through whatever suffering they're going through. Right? and so this is kind of like the picture that you see of these psalmists they're sinners, sufferers and saints. there's all of these things happening in their life at once and and these psalms they're supposed to teach us um, last time we saw we, we said that the psalms they functioned as israel's prayer book um, they are god's gracious instruction manual if you will for for how to talk with him how to respond to him um, and just to like put that statement into perspective for you guys um, have you thought about how you learned to pray right, like why do you say the things that you do in your prayers why do you say i don't know like father in heaven every single time that you pray as opposed to this person who says dear god or why, do you, why does Pastor Kim close with the same thing before he, he says amen every single time? Right? Like how, how do you learn how to pray? And I'm guessing that most of us, we learn how to pray by listening to other people pray. Right? Like That's probably how we picked it up. Um, certain phrases that we say every single time. Well, just to put that in perspective for us, like that's what the Psalms are supposed to do for us. Like they're supposed to teach us to pray Uh, in that way. There are teachers in that way. And I think one of the important lessons that the Psalms teach us is that our prayers are a place where we process our emotions before God. Our prayers are a place where we process our emotions before God. In fact, our prayers need to be where we process our emotions in our lives before God. See, God doesn't call us to figure everything out before we go before him. And so if there is anywhere that we are trying to figure it all out, if there's anyone that we're supposed to try to work this out with, right, there is no better place, there is no better person than God. And as we go before him in our conversations with him. Um, Alistair Groves uh, is an author, he put it like this. God doesn't call us to avoid or squash our emotions, as Christians often suppose. Neither does he call us to embrace them unconditionally, as our culture often urges. Rather, he calls us to engage them by bringing our emotions to him and to his people. I like the word engage because it doesn't make a premature assumption about whether the emotion is right or wrong or how it might need to change. Instead, it highlights what the Bible highlights. Our emotions, good and bad, are meant to reveal the countless ways we need God. And in Psalm 3, the specific emotion that David, the psalmist, struggles with and he experiences and he brings before God is the emotion of fear. Okay, psalm 3 is a picture of what it looks like to pray through our fears. Um, if you look at it real quick in your, in your Bibles, uh, there, how many of you guys have a heading there at the beginning of that psalm, Psalm 3. Okay, most of you guys. Um, mine says, the Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Right? If you have an ESV, that's maybe what yours says too. Um, in the Psalms, we don't always get to learn the immediate context or the occasion of every single Psalm uh, because there isn't always one that, that we're made aware of. But when we do, I, I think that's a privilege, that's a blessing, um, because it helps us to put a face to a name, so to speak. Right? When we get context... Uh, we learn, like, kind of the third-person external vantage point of everything, everything going on. And then in the psalm, we get this kind of, like, first-person internal vantage point of all the emotions on the back. And that's what we have in Psalm 3. Okay, and it says that the, the context of this psalm is uh, written by David, and he's fleeing from Absalom, who is his son. Um, how many of you guys are familiar with the story of David and Absalom? Okay, some of you guys, you can read about David and Absalom in Second Samuel chapters fifteen and eight, fifteen to eighteen. And if you read through it, uh, let me just say, the story of David and Absalom is is pretty crazy. Okay, like there is like all kinds of stuff that happens. Uh, like if you already know the story of David, his story individually is already pretty crazy right and then you know the story of Absalom and like the things happen, that happened in his life is like also crazy and then you put them together and it's like it just, it's like madness there's just all this stuff going on we learn about uh, like their complex estranged relationship and uh, just like all of these dynamics going on and we don't have time to get into all of it right now but in the context of this psalm uh, all you need to know is there's bad blood between them right obviously because Absalom's chasing David Uh, And they each hold something against the other. And it leads Absalom to turn the hearts of the people of Israel against David, their king. And just think about that for a second, right? Like your own son is turning the hearts of your own people against you. And as this is happening, as Absalom's contingent is growing, David begins to grow more and more fearful for his own life. And so he flees from Jerusalem, which is where he was king. And that's the context of this psalm. Okay, so with all of that in mind, uh, let's read this. Psalm chapter 3. It says, "A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. The key idea uh, I have for us tonight is, it's written on your outlines. It's when I am afraid, God keeps me safe and gives me rest. When I am afraid, God keeps me safe and gives me rest. And we're going to use that statement and we're going to break it down into three points. So point number one, when I am afraid. When I am afraid. Look at verse one. David says, "O Lord, How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now there's a word that comes up over and over again in just those two verses, right? And it's the word many. In David's case, uh, this was literally true. If you look in verse six, he says it again. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. All right, so, so David has many people uh, coming up against him and what he means by that literally thousands of people pursuing him wanting to take his life and the person in charge of all of that we said is his own son now uh, for us i don't know if we'll ever experience that right like we'll never experience that same reason or that same occasion uh, for fear as david did i doubt any of us will probably ever have anyone trying to catch us in order to kill us, right? Like, not even one, hopefully. Uh, David had thousands. But whatever that thing is that might cause you to fear, um, I'm sure that we can still relate to this, right? We can still relate to, to David's feelings and emotions of fear, right? And uh, I'm guessing that most, most, if not all of us, know what it's like to feel overwhelmed like David did, right? To, to feel the manyness of his fear, Uh, if I can put it that way. Like, to feel like there are many people or many things stacked against you. Uh, Maybe you experience, like in one relationship, betrayal or fallout or uh, just broken trust, right? And even though it's one relationship, all of a sudden it can feel like many are against you, right? Like they're friends, they're friends of friends, maybe an entire group of people. uh, It feels like they're all against you. Or maybe to other people, like the, the, the trouble that you're sharing with them might not seem like a huge thing. Like it's not something worth being fearful about. Uh, or maybe even for you in retrospect, right? Like looking in the rear view mirror, that fear that you were so freaked out over might not seem so substantial. But what I know is at least in that moment, in that moment of fear, we know what it's like to say with David, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. Right? We know what that's like. Have you been there before? But I think in these verses, there's uh, also another aspect of David's fear that I think we can relate to. If you look at verse 2, David says that his enemies aren't only rising up against him. They're not only attacking him, but they're hurling accusations against him. They're accusing him. See that? And what do they say? They say, there is no salvation for him in God. Let's go back to uh, the context a little bit, the story of David and Absalom. Like I said, this backstory is, there's all kinds of stuff that happens. Each of them has some substantial personal baggage, and there was this, there was stuff that happened in their relationship. Um, You guys are probably familiar with some of the dark things that happened in David's past, right? His adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah. Um, and then when it comes to David's relationship with his son Absalom, there was also some regrettable things in that relationship that he did. Uh, David, he one of the things that he could have done better is he failed to act decisively. He failed to act swiftly when his own daughter, Tamar, was violated. Okay, Absalom's sister. And she was violated, and David failed to... Uh, do something decisive about it and so Absalom had this grudge against his own father for for not doing something Um, and their relationship was all broken and another thing that David failed to do is he failed to pursue reconciliation with his own son like he kept a distance even though he in his heart he wanted to be reconciled to Absalom he 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 never uh, reconciled with him and so their relationship was fragile and damaged and so all of this is in David's mind, right? All of this is in his past. Uh, there's this really interesting passage in, in 2 Samuel 16, where this guy named Shimei, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but Shimei, who like appears out of nowhere. And he is a relative of King Saul, the king before David. And as David is fleeing from Jerusalem, Shimei like comes out of nowhere and he follows David and his men along the road, and he's like accusing them and hurling insults at them. He's throwing stones at them and cursing at them. And what he says to David is that everything happening to you, David, is the Lord's punishment on you for the blood of Saul and all the things that you've done wrong. Okay, this is what he says. He says, see your evil is on you for you are a man of blood. Okay, so like this, all of this stuff is in David's mind, right? And you have this like literal reminder of this guy named shimei like shouting these insults at you, at him and telling him look this is all happening because like you did something wrong as god is punishing you and what's interesting in that passage second like samuel 16 is that david's men they turn to david and they're like why should this dead dog curse my lord the king that's that's actually what it says in the bible i need to paraphrase that why should this dead dog curse my lord the king Let me go over and take off his head. Basically, they're like, David, let's kill this guy, right? He's like speaking nonsense. And David tells his men, don't touch him. He says, maybe he's right. Maybe God is cursing me. And If not, maybe God will repay me later for, for this guy's cursing on me. But he says, I'm not sure. Like, I'm not sure why all of this is happening to me. Maybe God is cursing me for what I've done. That is the nerve that David's enemies are striking at with their accusations in verse 2. It says, there is no salvation for him in God. Like, think about all of the terrible things you've done, David. You've committed adultery with Bathsheba. You've, you've tried to cover it up by killing Uriah. Your, un, your own son is out to get you because you were not a great father. You seriously think that you deserve to be king anymore. What do you think God thinks about all of those things that you've done? See, that it's not even like God can't save, it's there is no salvation for you, David. And God won't save you. That not only have your own people abandoned you, but even God has abandoned you. And so, what are David's fears? What are his pressures and troubles? It's literal, physical threats to his life. People are out to to kill him, to take off his head. But it's shame and discouragement from his own past sin. It's doubt about his own qualifications as king. Let me ask you, what are your fears? What are your troubles? What are uh, your discouragements? Is it fear of the unknown future? Is it fear of failure? Fear of disappointing the people close to you? Is the fear of being left behind as everyone else around you moves on to grad school or relationships or marriage or whatever that next thing is in life? What are your fears? And on top of that, what are the lies and the accusations that your troubles speak against you? Is it your life is over if you don't get into that grad school or if you don't land that job? Like, what are you supposed to do now? Is God must love other people more than you if everyone else is where they want to be already. We have heard before um, that one of the most frequent commands in Scripture is do not be afraid. Right? It's a very tweetable <laughs> statement. Do not be afraid. The reason that we, are, we do not have to be afraid is, God says, for I am with you. Right? God's presence changes everything. And so in the midst of all of those fears, the the question that we need to ask ourselves when it comes to situations like this is not just, oh, what do I know? Or like, how do I do this? What's the next step? The question that we need to ask is, who is with me? Who is with me? And that leads us to point number two. And God keeps us. God keeps me safe. God keeps me safe. Verse three. David says, But you, O Lord are a shield about me my glory and the lifter of my head i cried aloud to the lord and he answered me from his holy hill i want you to notice the contrast there at the beginning of verse three right uh verses one and two david says this is what i'm experiencing this is what is in front of me right all of this stuff but he gets to verse three and he says but you O lord but You, O oh Lord, there are many, many enemies rising up against me, hurling many, many accusations against me. But you, right, you, singular, you, O oh Lord, are the only one that matters. And he follows that, and he gives us three descriptions of who God is. Three descriptions of who God is to David and his troubles. First one, he says, you are a shield about me. You are a shield uh, around me. Um. He's talking about... Uh, God's protection of him, right? We understand this uh, imagery. God surrounds him. God covers him. Uh, It's the idea that David's enemies, they might be coming from every single direction, every single side. But David says, God, you are my defense. He will not be hurt if God is his shield. David says, God, you are the protection that you alone can provide. The question that we need to think about is, What does God, our shield, protect us from? What does he protect us from? Like, what does this promise entail for us? It doesn't mean that God will always completely remove us from attack. It doesn't mean that he will completely remove us uh, from, from the people or the circumstances that cause us to experience fear. It doesn't mean that no one will ever turn against us or that no one will ever raise a weapon against us, right? Think about that. Like, what good is a shield if you're, like, at home base? You know, like, there's no threat of attack. A shield is used when you're in battle, when people are actually out to get you. And so it doesn't mean that we will never experience trouble or reason for fear, but what it does mean is that God will defend you, that God won't let you be overwhelmed. He won't let you be destroyed. And here's what it might mean, too. It might mean that God allows certain things in your life in his wise and his sovereign protection of you. In other words, you might not even realize completely what God is protecting you from. Like, maybe the thing that he is protecting you from is not that seemingly urgent need, but he's protecting you from some sin or danger in your heart. Um, Just think about the example of Paul, right? That's what happened to Paul. And Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, this is uh, a really uh, pretty famous passage, right? God afflicts Paul with this thorn in his flesh. And we don't know what it is, but uh, we know that, that Paul asked God three times, deliver me from this thorn in my flesh. But God doesn't do it, right? He doesn't do it. In God's wisdom, he doesn't take it away, not because he is a poor protector, but because he is protecting Paul from something more dangerous, Paul says he, he's he's protecting me from growing conceited. Right, he's protecting me from my own pride. Um, Tim Keller he puts it like this: He says if we suffer here, it is only to shield us from something far more damaging elsewhere. If we lose something now, it is only to shield us from losing something greater much later. And so God is our shield; He will protect us, even from things that we might not know are dangerous. For us. Uh, second thing David says is, You are my glory. You are my glory. And that word there for glory uh, is the word kavod, or it also means weight, this idea of weightiness. Um, when you think of what David might have considered his glory, you can think of it as whether the things that gave him weight, or substance, or value to his life. Okay, what are the things that gave weight, and substance, and value to David's life? Um, another, to put it another way, it's the thing that allows you to walk with your head up, if you look at later in verse 3. And so what would that have been for David? Well, it would have been his kingship. It would have been his military conquest. It would have been the praises of his people. Right? That would have been his glory. And here, David kind of recalibrates his own heart, and he says, no, you, God, are my glory. You are my glory, not all of these other things. He says your assessment of me god is what matters that everything else is comparatively unimportant and i think one of the things uh, that makes our troubles even more difficult right when we're suffering one of the things that makes it even harder is that our idols or to put it with the language with the words of this psalm the things that we glory in our idols when those things get threatened right and that's not to say that Like, suffering is painless if we just deal with our idols. It's not saying that the threat of loss is not real. That they're not real or significant. But what I think David shows us here is that what can make suffering even more difficult? What makes it even more difficult is because suffering often threatens or even takes away those things that we have been glorying in. Those things that we have been building our lives on, those things that we look to so that we could hold our head up. And yet, on the flip side, what allows us to not be completely overwhelmed by suffering, what allows us to be able to suffer well, is when we turn and we recognize that God is the only thing worth glorying in, the only one worth glorying in. So let me ask you, where is your glory? Where is your glory? I think I've used these same examples before. But if you glory in your own competence, in your academic achievement, your future career, uh, then why should you be surprised when it is so crippling and it is so devastating when that job offer doesn't come through? And when you don't get into that grad school, when, when whatever opportunity doesn't work out or if you glory in your significant other, if you glory in a romantic relationship, if you've placed all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your expectations on this person, and you expect him or her to be the one person who makes you happy, then why should you be so surprised when a breakup is so devastating? And again, I'm not saying that it's not hard in of itself, but if you've placed all of your expectations, hopes, dreams, on that thing. Right? Of course it will be hard. And it's taken away from you. And so what is that for you? Right? Is there something in your heart that you were glorying in other than God? And do you need to repent of that thing tonight? Could your difficult circumstances, your experience of fear, be God's means of reorienting your heart on Him so that He alone is your glory? The third thing that David, uh, the third description of God uses is he says you are the lifter of my head you are the lifter of my head there is uh, a picture of david as he's running away from jerusalem in second samuel 15:30, and uh it's this picture of david and he's weeping as he's running away he's barefoot and his head is covered and like you just read that description of david and this is the king that we're talking about right like weeping barefoot Head is covered in shame, he's bowed down in shame, he's absolutely devastated. But again, David, or or God meets David in his trouble, and David says, God, you are the lifter of my head. You are the lifter of my head. And I love that David puts it that way. He says, God, you condescend into the middle of my chaos when I am downcast, and you come and you lift up my head. Now it's true that in our suffering, in our difficult circumstances, um, maybe you've heard this before in another sermon. We as believers, we're supposed to like lift up our eyes, right? We're supposed to have the, the greater perspective. We're supposed to remember uh, the better spiritual realities. We're supposed to have a different kind of perspective, right? We, we lift up our eyes as believers uh, in our suffering. We're supposed to do that. But I love that in this particular psalm, it shows us that God comes alongside. And what does he do? He's the one. Who lifts our head for us. Right? He's the one who lifts us up. Right? He's the one who provides encouragement and assurance and confidence when we are downcast, when we're discouraged, when we're disheartened. He's the one who comes and he restores our joy. Right? That's what we see in verse 4. That the God who is all of these things is the God who answers. David says, I I cried aloud to the Lord. He answered me from his holy hill. Um, That phrase there, holy hill, is a reference to God's dwelling place, which was the temple, which was Jerusalem, right? And where is David fleeing from? He's fleeing from Jerusalem. And so David is saying, even though circumstances and people are causing David to doubt his own kingship, God reminds him that, first of all, God is the true king, right, ruling from his holy hill, Secondly, God is the one who established established David as the king. Now, guys, we've talked often um, about how our idols, these things that we glory in, other than God, like we said, our idols make poor saviors, right? They just demand more and more and more from you. They never leave you satisfied. Uh, When suffering comes, uh, these idols are threatened, they're swept away, and they leave you completely devastated. They are poor saviors because they promise you everything. They promise you the world, but they never deliver. They demand your trust, and they demand your hopes, but they're shaky ground when suffering comes. But here we see that God is a better savior. He's not only like we're supposed to trust in God because that's the right thing to do. No, God is a better savior. He is the only savior, and he actually follows through with all of his promises. That's what we see here. In these verses, isn't it? That in the moments that we most need saving, that God comes through. He comes and he saves. And if that's what he does, that it means that we can trust him. Right? It means that he's actually worthy of our trust. And that's what we see in the next point. Okay? So when I am afraid, God keeps me safe and he gives me rest. That's point number three, gives me rest. Okay, so in verses three and four we have David's declarations about who God is uh, in his troubles. And here in verse five, we get David's response in light of those realities. Okay, look at verse five. David says, I lay down and slept, I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So so what does who God is lead David to do? Well, he gets a good night's sleep. That's what the character of God leads David to do. He can lay down and he can rest. And when he wakes up in the morning, David says, it's because what? The Lord sustained me. Uh, I I wish there was more time for us to to get into this. I was thinking about it. Seriously, we could do like a whole sermon series on sleep for college students specifically. Like why you should sleep more. Why you shouldn't sleep in Sunday service. Like all kinds of stuff. coming 2020 maybe um but the idea of sleep it it comes up often in the psalms okay and and most of the time it demonstrates this like humble trust this submission to and this acknowledgement of our own limitations right as human beings as finite human beings in god's sovereignty that the act of going to sleep, of being able to sleep at night is a demonstration that we understand our own limitations and we acknowledge God's sovereignty. Um, For example, in Psalm 127, Solomon, he says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil for he gives to his beloved sleep. Basically, sleep is a gift Right? like It's in vain that you try to get as little sleep as possible um, because you need it. Right? God is the one who provides. God is the one who builds the house, uh, is the way he puts it in Psalm 127. And I want you to notice here in this psalm um, that David puts this thing that we do every single night without thought. Right? We go to sleep every single night without thinking about it. And he puts that next to this other thing that none of us will probably ever experience. Right, being pursued by thousands of people, being surrounded by thousands of people who have set themselves against you. Um, and let me just, just side note, scripture does this elsewhere. Okay, it sets this like, kind of thing, this like, everyday kind of thing that we might consider uh, unsubstantial, and it puts it next to this like, really important thing that we're, we're scared about. For example, uh, in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, right, Jesus says, oh, are you worried about your food, right, your shelter, how you're going to live the next day? Look at the birds, right? Look at the flowers of the field, right? Look at something so simple and be reminded that God does all of that. Like, God is responsible for all of that. And so in this psalm, like, I want you to think about it. When is the last time that you went to sleep at night unsure of whether you would wake up in the morning? Probably never, right? Or if 99.99999% of the time you go to sleep, you expect to wake up in the morning. And, like, to bring it another step further, like, for some of you, you don't even care where you fall asleep, okay? Like, some of you, we have, like, some of us, we have a hard time, you know, like, falling asleep in a new place that first night. Others of you are like, nope, don't care, right? Fall asleep on a bench in the middle of campus with all of your stuff out. (laughs) And you just, like, you fall asleep and you just expect to wake up, right? You just expect to open your eyes again and hopefully you still have your laptop and your phone and stuff like that. (laughs) Have you ever thought about why do you wake up The next morning like why you wake up after you falling asleep and david is trying to show us that underneath both of these things right uh, going to sleep and being defended and protected against thousands of enemies both of these things underneath all of that is the same reality and it's that the lord sustains you The Lord sustains you, whether you are sound at sleep or whether you are surrounded by people out to get you, the Lord is the one who holds your life in his hands. Whether he is the one who causes all of the science stuff in your body to function, the hormones, the body temperature to do this or that, the blood pressure to do this or that. Um, I tried to Google, like, what does your body do when you wake up? And I tried, like, I couldn't understand it. So I just copied some words that I saw here and there. Whether he is the one who causes all of that to happen or he is the one who defends you from your enemies, the Lord is the one who sustains you. And on a human level, like these situations are on opposite ends of the spectrum. But think about it. What is that to God? Or like what is that to God? What is more difficult for God to do? David thanks God that he gives him sleep. And his circumstances haven't changed. If anything, his enemies are closer to him now than when he first laid down. David shows us that he can rest. He can rest. And that is, David's, or that is God's kindness towards him. Right? That is God's gracious kindness towards him. Um, for us, we say, that, uh, we say that God is kind when someone passes away in their sleep. Right? And that's true. Like, they don't have to go uh, suffering. They go peacefully. But David shows us, like, that's God's kindness to you when you wake up from your sleep, right? Not just when you pass away, when you wake up from your sleep. He's the one who wakes you up in the morning. So who God is, what he has said, his promises to David are this pillow for David's head at night. He can can sleep soundly even in the face of his enemies. Now, I want you to notice the progression in this psalm, okay? So we have in verses one and two, We have David's troubles, right? This is what is in front of me. This is what's going on. And then in verses 3 and 4, he recounts the character of God. This is who God is in the midst of my troubles. And those realities, they lead him to this restful and quiet heart in verses 5 and 6, right? I can be at rest. I can go to sleep at night trusting in God. But like we said, the circumstances haven't changed. And so that's why we still have verses 7 and 8. Okay, like that's why we still have those verses, but that order is important. David petitions after he has processed his own heart, his own fears, his own troubles before God. And then he can ask. And this is what he says, verse seven. He says, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people some of you might read verse 7 uh, where he talks about like breaking his enemies faces striking them on the cheek um, and you might think like can he say that right like is that okay to say about his enemies um, and short answer we won't go too much into this but yes and we, we see statements like this in the psalms um, and i think we can understand that as david just asking for justice or right? he's asking for a wrong to be made right and it's not saying that david is like the one pure saint who deserves to be rescued from like all of these sinful bad guys. No, it's one sinner asking God to bring about his justice and accomplish his purposes and be delivered from other sinners. And I think we see that in verse 8. Okay, look what he says. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And salvation belongs to the Lord. If you think back to the beginning, what were his enemies' accusations against him? said there is no salvation for him in god in other words david there's no salvation for you right for you there is no salvation you're out but here at the end of this psalm you would think that david's rebuttal david's conclusion would be something like no there is salvation for me in god right you would think that he would say something like that but that's not what he says he says salvation belongs to the lord Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the one who will provide and protect. And he is the one who will give salvation. And so that means it's not because of my own qualifications. It's not because of what I've done or what I deserve. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And if he saves me, if he protects me, if he lifts up my head, that's because of his grace. It's because of his grace. It's because God doesn't abandon his own people. This is what it looks like to pray through our fears before God. Hopefully this has been instructive for you. We bring our fears, our anxieties, our troubles before the God who is our shield, who is our glory, who is the lifter of our heads. And knowledge of who he is, knowledge of his presence, being there with him, having him with you, brings us rest. Now, what ended up happening to David and Absalom? Absalom. Well, you can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 18. But basically, Absalom gets killed. Okay, his own son gets killed. And, uh, in 2 Samuel 18.33, uh, we have what I think is probably one of the saddest scenes in the entire Bible. Okay, what happens is one of David's men brings word to David and He's happy. He's like, good news, my king. The Lord has delivered you from the hand of, of those who have risen up against you. The Lord has delivered you from your enemies. And David, like, well aware that his son is the one who is you know, leading this charge, he says, well, what about Absalom? And this guy is still ecstatic. He's still happy. He says, yeah, may, may your enemies, may all those who rise up against you be like that young man. May they all die like he did. And David Upon hearing that news he retreats into his chamber and he just breaks down and he weeps and he says oh my son Absalom my son my son Absalom would i had died instead of you oh Absalom my son my son and that's what happens after this song you have you have fear you have anxiety you have danger at the beginning you have tragedy and lost at the end but in the middle of all of that chaos in the middle of that dark and broken story in the middle of all of that we get psalm 3 and i think it's this snapshot of confidence of comfort that we can find in god even in suffering it's it's rest even in the middle of everything that is against us it's a picture of quietness even in the face of your enemies all right it's this picture of peace and assurance even amidst the noisy accusations and for us as Christians, that includes even your greatest enemy and your greatest accuser. In 1 Peter 5.8, it says that your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In Revelation 12, it says that Satan is the accuser. He accuses the brethren day and night. And if you're not familiar with maybe the accusations of your enemies, then I'm sure you are thoroughly familiar with those from the accuser, right? From Satan. The thoughts of there is no salvation for you, that you've committed that one sin again, seriously? Like you've done that again? You call yourself a Christian? You think God is going to give you grace that one more time? God protects us from even that accuser. So we know that for us when we read... Uh, when David says that salvation belongs to the Lord, we know that God has provided ultimate salvation for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Right? Like that's how we can understand that salvation belongs to the Lord. That God has provided salvation for us through his, his son, Jesus Christ, David's greater son. And like David, Jesus understood what it was like to be pursued by his enemies, to not only fear losing his kingship, but to willingly give it away. And instead of having his head lifted up by the Father, he bowed his head down as he suffered God's punishment on our behalf. And because of that, because of that, as Christians, we as God's people can say that he is my shield, he is my glory, he is the lifter of my head. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8 That is how we can answer our accuser because of the salvation that's come from him. And so, like I said at the beginning, um, these psalms, they teach us how to pray. And and this psalm, in particular, teaches us how to pray through our fears. Um, And so, as we close, um, I just want to close by, by praying through this psalm together. Okay, so let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you with our own fears, our own anxieties and troubles. And for some of us, it feels like we are surrounded on every side by things or people out to get us. We experience the accusations of our enemies and of the enemy. We hear uh, the cry that there's no salvation for us, there's no salvation for you. And God, in that, we are tempted to turn away from your gospel, which secures your favor we're tempted to look to our own merit, our own qualifications. And God, when we do, we are left discouraged and we're left downcast. And God, we thank you that with David, we can say to you that you, O Lord, are our shield. That you surround us and you protect us. You are our glory. That unlike other false saviors, you are the only one worth placing all of our hopes and our trust in. That with David, we can say you, O God, are the lifter of my head because of who you are, God, we can rest. And so, Father, give us perspective to remember that whether in the small neglected things like sleep and the big things like trouble, that you are always sustaining us and we can trust you to continue to sustain us into the future. So, God, in, in light of who you are, Lord, we ask that you would deliver us from our troubles for your name's sake. We thank you for the salvation that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. Because of him, we know that the worst thing that could happen to us has already fallen on him. Lord, we thank you and we love you. Help us to to process our fears before you, knowing that you are our shield. You are our glory and the lifter of our heads. We ask this humbly in the name of Christ. Amen.